Welcome to International Development Where Now, the podcast that talks to thinkers and doers from diverse countries and tries to work out where we have come from and where we're going, and sometimes whether there are options for doing things differently. I'm Stephen Lee, Chief Economist at Oxford Policy Management and your host. We've changed the name from Policy and Pandemics because we're not really in a pandemic anymore, even though the impacts rumble on. And in the first episode of Where Now, I talked to my old boss, Professor Stefan Durkhorn, about his popular new book, Gambling on Development. After the interview, I was even more struck about how he sees developing countries as places where leadership has some real choices, especially if they can bring elite groups along with them, and that calculated gambles might let history unfold in a better way. Welcome, Stefan Durkon, Professor of Economics at Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford, formerly Chief Economist and my boss at the now defunct Department for International Development. Um, we're going to be talking about your book, Gambling on Development, Stefan, and, and which I've read. It's a very, very engaging read. It's a bit like reading the autobiography of a celebrity from my hometown because there's lots of your own experience in it. And it's very similar to lots of my own experience. I seem to have been trailing in your footsteps more than I'd realised. Thank you very much for writing it and thanks for being here today. The book's called Gambling on Development. What What's the gamble? Uh, well, well, first, uh, Stephen, thanks for, for asking me. And um... And it's and it's it's intriguing to to hear your your way of reflecting on the book also because it's it's something uh, that I wanted to write about because you know you you observe and you want to get somehow some of your experience reflected but in a in a sensible way and this gamble that I'm talking about is is actually for me it's descriptively it's what I've observed in some countries. That, uh, that I've been involved in and working in, that actually somehow or another those people with power and influence, the elite as I call them in, in, uh, in, in, in the book, seem to have decided to put growth, economic growth and also development center stage in what they do. Now, why is it a gamble? Because growth and development are always things with a long-term horizon. They are bit risky, they're a bit unclear whether you actually be successful in it. Actually, we also know historically, and, and any group in power or with influence in a country will realize that in a lot of places in the world, beginning to grow and growing your economy often destabilizes as well and puts and risks actually the position of the elite. So the gamble is really that the status quo is very attractive. But there are some countries, and I'm actually glad to say more than I expected the more I look at it, where broadly speaking, the elite people with power and influence have actually taken that gamble and actually trying to develop, even though we do know that it actually can backfire, it may not be successful, it's uncertain. So that's the that's the gamble of development that I that I uh, want, want to write about. So you're saying that there's an elite uh, they, they, uh, there's a sort of bargain in the elite, in the elite about you know the, the way of running the country, and uh, and it almost sounds like you're saying sometimes the elite make an active decision to sort of go for go for growth, go for poverty reduction and uh, and development. Um, and by uh, the corollary of that is that sometimes they don't decide that, and sometimes the elite can be very comfortable without any of that. I'm just wondering, you know, how active does that decision have to be? Does the, 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 the elite necessarily know they're making that decision or are they just doing things which lead to or permit uh, this sort of development to happen? 
so, so I think so the, so the way to think about it is that definitely this is if this is a contract it's an implicit contract if it's a deal that they make amongst each other it's something that is much more implicit and and it's more reflected in you know certain common behaviors and actions rather than somehow they had a big signing ceremony of the elite bargain for development is now made. Having said that, there's a few places where it does feel a bit, a bit more ex explicit and places where it totally is implicit. So let me contrast the two, two quick stories on that, is that in Bangladesh, you know, there's very many people, and I, I spent there again a bit of time in June, and the more you talk to people is that actually most people actually tend to agree with his diagnosis that somewhere in the 1980s, Bangladesh moved to somehow a development bargain, an elite bargain for development. And they, they really became committed as an elite to do certain things. But they were all arguing when it happened. And all the people I talked to couldn't quite agree. No, no, this is the moment it was. No, that was the moment and so on. And I think it's a bit like that. You're not quite sure when it happened, but it seems to have happened. You know, different bits, small decisions, bigger decisions, smaller deals and whatever. If I then think of Ethiopia, where it it is probably was almost a strategic decision to to yeah. in response to... A legitimacy crisis, you needed to do something as the regime in Ethiopia after coming out of the war with Eritrea in 2000, um, big drought and, and, and risk of famine in 2002, and then election that they lost. Actually, in that period, that they actually had say, well, look, yeah, we can fix the election, that's easy, but we actually have to deliver something, we have to have legitimacy here. And in Melissanawi, clearly there is this sense that that became a strategy to get legitimacy for the regime. So the development strategy, the elite bargain amongst the different groups that have power and influence at the time in the country was a bit, bit like that, a bit more explicit. You're mainly talking, Stefan, about positive changes, about when a, when a really good uh, pro-development elite bargain emerges. But uh, can we also not have uh, slipbacks away from a pro-development? Uh, or at least we can have false starts. I can think of some of those. But yeah, can we not slip back? No, no, you're absolutely right. And the false start. And actually, I have to start studying better the false starts and, and, and thinking of it. Of course, the one that springs to mind, which was a nightmare to write about, because the situation kept on changing, was Ethiopia. And the one that I kind of know best, having worked so long on it. And, you know, I don't take it back that there wasn't that more, that there was an elite bargain, definitely until about 2016, 2017 in the country. Uh, starting probably around 2002, three or something. And it actually was, of course, delivered really massive growth. And, um, you know, that was definitely happening. Melis, of course, Melis Sanawi was the, the big forger of that elite bargain at the time and, and was the one that kept the different groups together. But as we know, he died in 2012. Uh, rather unexpectedly for, for a lot of people, but actually he had been ill for a while. But of course, it did change the dynamics in the elite bargain quite a bit because there was not an obvious forger of the elite bargain anymore. But different groups that were part of the elite bargain, especially organized around nationalities, around ethnicity, started to think really that um, they started to think really that they didn't really get enough of the pie. Although I would probably still argue there were the, the Tigrayans were not just they were not lining their pockets, they were actually probably spending it badly uh, on, on failed parastatals, uh, big companies that were trying to do all kinds of development work that some of them should have been a bit more cautious. 
But anyway, the, the other ethnic groups, nationalities wanted to actually more control over these things. And somehow the political deal underlying that development bargain fell apart. What about the non-elite? Did they have a, any role in this? Did they shape the bargain? And so it's a criticism and a comment I get quite a lot where, um, where, where it's a bit like, where are the people here now? You know, this is all very elitist. You know, is there no, are there no forces? So one of, one of the reasons why I quite consciously focus on the elite and, um, is that they have the power to stop. They have the power, broadly speaking, to really block, block progress if they wanted to. Now, of course, it can be disrupted, but then, then we're back to the revolution type of thing. It can be with real pressure from below, it, it can, can change. But, but the elite matters because it's their blocking power. That is actually the kind of the real feature of it. And so the non-elite have their role, but they clearly, you know, they, you have to ask yourself, so how easily could the elite block uh, anything that, that could happen? And in lots of societies, especially in very poor ones, I think that is a real, real issue. And it's and it's not as simple as democracy or not. You know, we have democracies where uh, in Malawi, where actually nothing changes, even though different people seem to have the power. Um, and you could have autocratic systems where there's a reasonable amount of internal accountability amongst the, within the leadership. If you think of China in the 1980s, where there's an internal accountability. So so there is a chance for, you know, more than a few people to actually um uh to 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 have a certain accountability i remember a student of mine who was very well connected in the in the communist party i discovered that afterwards but she said look i find all this talk about democracy really interesting um and she generally she said well i think china is a democracy with a bit of a pause and of course i looked a bit puzzled but I said no no it's a democracy for seven percent of the population Mm. There is an internal accountability through through political mechanisms for seven percent of the of the of the population that it's there, and so you need something. Okay, so that that could be ways that from from below it can can work. But I come back to this point: the elite they have blocking power, and it's and 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 status quo can be very very attractive for the elite. And not taking a gamble on on anything is is very much uh, the easy route for them. So. So, yeah, that's why I focus on that elite. And I don't, again, don't want to say there is no role for the others, but blocking power is important. Most of your book is a tour of lots of different countries, lots of different countries that seem to be very important to you, mostly to me as well. Uh, uh, and but for me, what emerges is a spectrum. It's not really either or. There's, there's countries right at the end, you know, China, Ethiopia. There's an explicit elite bargain in favour of growth and development in those countries. And then right at the other end, you've got you know, maybe Malawi and Sierra Leone and DRC, where for uh, like at least long periods, there's been the, pretty much the opposite of that. But then there's a lot of countries in the middle, are there not? No, you're absolutely right. And so you could you could talk about countries where there is a regressing development bargain, where they're moving away more, less and less into development focus. You have countries, of course, that are emerging there as well. And and um, yeah, and, 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 and it's incredibly right. No, no, I agree with you. And I and look in that middle category, for example, I would actually place quite a few, um, and I'll try to allude to it, at least in the book, like uh, East African countries, you know, the Kenyas, the Tanzanias, with uh, Samia now, with President Samia Hassan, uh, Uganda, with Museveni, the player of this thing, um, hot and cold on development and growth and, 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 and all the other mechan- all the things that are playing. So, so I think that they're a bit in, um, 
in purgatory, so to speak. You know, they could they could well be uh, promoted to the higher league, to the to the heavenly levels of development. But um, yeah, it, it is there, and it, of course, it is in that sense. It's it's bound to be not binary. And I think of it in Ethiopia, where I think one of the problems was that they couldn't renew. I mean, it's an important thing as well. Is that that you know. Whether you are an elite bargain for development or an elite bargain for something else, for, for just stealing from the population or for just dividing the oil rents amongst each other, you know, it can't be seen as something static. So virtually in all these places, it had to be some dynamic. You know, if your economy develops a little bit, you know, new elites may well emerge. You need to adjust the whole thing and you need to keep on going. And in that sense, again, you know, there will be backsliding, strengthening, less of that. And of course, in the other places as well, you know, the crisis will make it either firmer non-developmental or maybe uh, more a bit more developmental because they need to stay in power and so on so i agree with you and it's the yeah it's the it's the it's the challenge a bit of of of, of this but look presentationally you know that well enough working in the kind of environment you work in is that you need to push somehow you need to be willing to at some point say it's there or not there because otherwise you sit in in in, in an, an area in the way you either think about it or the way you respond to it also including as outsiders in some procrastination where you actually don't make choices and i and i felt like i want to have a book also where i do speak out you know i've spoken out probably more negatively than i used to think about malawi and not just for effect but and Malawi makes me cross, you know, it is actually the fact that it's still so poor, it shouldn't be. There's a piece in the book about the Malawi farmer input subsidy programme, which was quite personal for me, because although uh, this that's a massive subsidy, first, um, a subsidy on fertiliser for farmers in Malawi, right, that happened in the noughties. And I wasn't working in Malawi, but I was working in Tanzania, where my World Bank colleagues were very impressed by this scheme in Malawi and wanted to support something similar in Tanzania. And they were very impressed by the gold standard evidence that farmers with a subsidy were better off with, than the farmers without a subsidy in the same place. They didn't seem to have totted up the costs of delivering that very carefully or at all. And they, uh, I'm sure they did in the end, but that, that seemed, that's when I was there, that seemed to be the state of affairs. They hadn't looked at the costs very hard. And also, although they thought really hard about agriculture probably in Malawi, certainly in Tanzania, they had not located the problem of agriculture in Tanzania to the input markets. They said it was all about the markets for produce, you know, which were sort of designed uh, in many layers to extract every bit of surplus that the farmers were ever likely to come across. So there's kind of no point in investing anything in farming, no point in buying any inputs. Um, perhaps was that perhaps that was the link. But anyway, uh, they did some version of it in Tanzania and highly targeted, I gather. Um, I guess that's in the book partly because that is somebody struggling to do something good in a situation where there is really not a pro-development bargain. Yes, and, and it's also, there is something there, and this is like, maybe I should clarify, is that, look, of course, Malawi is desperately poor, and, and, I, and, and, and it is a country that, because of its location, it's hard to think of any other, other kind of um competitive advantage could ever have then it will have to start coming from agriculture you know it doesn't have the luxury of dar es salaam doesn't have the luxury of obvious uh, kilimanjaro to climb or nature reserves or zanzibar to earn for an exchange with and so so there is something there it has to come from agriculture 
So that's actually, I need to do that kind of respectfully. There's nothing wrong with trying to say we need to try to find a way of developing through agriculture. What I get more, more frustrated by, both by what you describe, the kind of laziness of all oh, seems to be popular there, let's do it here as well, and, 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 and getting momentum in the Tanzania based on the Malawi, but was also the laziness in terms of this kind of obsession with the silver bullet, the obsession that actually, you know, that, that there's somehow that kind of, you know, planting that magic bean, a bit more maize, and suddenly everything else will unlock, which was very much what ended up being promoted, you know, that single issue can do while, you know, as we know that it absorbed every other support, any every other penny that there was for support for the rest of agriculture. Malawi ended up with a higher share of spending on agriculture than anything else. And if you're landlocked, you better spend things on infrastructure as well. You need to move around, you need to move things out. And so you bias entirely what you're doing. And for me, the diagnosis of why you do that is that it actually is because in the end, centrally in government, you don't care enough about. So anything that some magician or Jeff Sachs proposes, you will, we will do. That's the problem, essentially. There is not an underlying shared commitment to actually fundamentally say, look, we're going to really, you know, tighten the belts a bit, focus on a few things, not focus on everything. And we're not going to just do the silver bullet, but we're actually going to think it through what actually can work here. And we're going to, and if it doesn't work, we're going to stop it. And that's the other part of the Fertilizer Eastwood program. They're still trying to stop it <laughs> 20 years later. I, for the, the 10 years that I was at, at Differs and now CDO, all the conversations was always about, we need to scale this down, we're conscious we need to do this. And so for the last 20 years, they've been trying to close it down, which is, of course, virtually politically becomes impossible because of course, if you close it down, it will cost, there will people benefit from this, including farmers, some farmers. We might not think of ourselves as two old white guys talking about other people's countries, but if my kids were listening to that, they would, especially if it's me, they would certainly say that that is what we were doing. So as an antidote to that, I thought we could maybe talk about whether this model applies to our own countries, to the America in Europe. So here's a hypothesis. There was a, a pro-development elite bargain in America and Europe, 1945 to 1980. And that has changed uh, uh, at some point since then, uh, possibly quite gradually. Uh, but, the, but the development model that was happening then is, has changed a bit in those countries. And you can tell if you look at the macro statistics and also if you look at what the elite is doing in those countries. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. So, so first of all, I would say, and this is why I also use that, that framework of an elite bargain, is that, you know, and I've worked long enough in Whitehall in, in, in the government departments, you know, it is there, you know, there is an underlying elite bargain and so on. And we should not underestimate that our economic model is built on a very strange elite bargain as well that finds it perfectly reasonable that if somehow or another you have a distant relative who happened to be carrying the sword of a Norman knight in uh well, this is in the, in, the, in the 11th century, and now gives you the right to be incredibly rich in this country. You know, that is an interesting model of how you think, you know, um, a, a country should, 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 should be run and, and the elite bargain that we have. And we shouldn't underestimate it. You know, we can 
be, be lyrical about property rights, but inheritance rights is a very peculiar phenomenon in, 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 uh, in, in, in a society. That's a choice. And that, that creates all kinds of disparities that we see in some countries more than in others. And um, so, so that's actually a first, first comment, is that this is not as if we are somehow well ahead of it. And um, now that the interesting thing is, how has it evolved? And, and you're right. You know, there was definitely a need bargain until probably in the first phase of the 1970s. I would actually say that we got a new one forged probably after that crisis period of the 1980s in the 1990s. And that actually that one has lasted until about, well, kind of five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also internationally was one as well, is that we moved away. And that's, of course, had to do with the end of the Cold War. That wasn't quite the end of history, but it was the kind of the end of the Cold War where a particular model without having to be, you know, where, without having to be seen to be doing this ideologically, which is basically what happened in the Cold War, it was actually just an acceptable way of doing it. It was a status quo that was allowed then just to continue in a particular way. And of course, it got us to the, the wealth disparities and the protection of certain positions, not least new industries that emerged like the tech industry that we just said, oh, no, it, Patents deliver us, and IP delivers us lots of nice things in the past. So therefore, the idea that they can have some unlimited wealth from from being an early mover in it is fine, and so on. And these are, you know, these are questions that we just basically didn't update the elite bargain, and we locked ourselves in a particular way. Geopolitically, it was easy because it was actually in a lot of people's interest, including, of course, in developing countries, and especially a lot of the countries I talk about that progressed they massively benefited and we can go to china to, to to south korea and whatever and they benefited massively from these opportunities all the way into india and a lot and basically a lot of asian countries and of course the elite bargain broke down probably first in the rich countries but it actually did in the other places and i think a little bit what we see now is that we're dragging in developing countries in that elite bargain that actually is ours that has broken down and so we try to put the blame partly of what's been happening in these countries. And I will dare to say, including in China, we, we, we invited them to play that role. And now we want to question it. You know, we, we, we allowed them to, to because it suited us and suited that particular lead bargain to grow. And now suddenly these globalization forces uh, that we pay back. And so we kind of risking a very tricky period. I think it's a lot to do with our elite bargain that was broken down and that we're exporting uh, to other places. Because this book is very national, right? It, all these bargains we're talking about, they're very within the bounds of, uh, of uh, national boundaries. Um, and I, I take from that, you know, the implication is that, that there's they're unique. You know, every country has its own bargain. Sometimes, the you know, where they are on the, uh, whether they're development bargains or not is, is a, a, a unique thing. But I, but I also kind of because of the same things you were talking about, I wonder whether that's quite right, you know, because we're talking about elites. But the point here really is that change will be very context specific. And it's that nature of change of the nature of how the gamble will come about. What are the constraining factors, as you were describing, the constraining factors to the growth, similarly, the constraining mm-hmm. factors to actually get that new deal and so on and doing it. And, and, and even though I say I would write a book on the more international dimensions and the role of it. I am still really struck, first of all, how context specific it is, the way that these elite, the, the changes are happening, the development bargains come about. But then secondly, that 
there is a lot of agency within countries because within a world that is maybe was quite benevolent to those countries that wanted to have a development bargain in recent times, the global climate that I described, mm-hmm. and the globalization and so on, and there were opportunities. Some took the advantage and others basically have no interest in taking it. So there is a, definitely an, an internal dimension thing. But what I really f- would find interesting is that um, to focus more on how, not so much of how we can control it, but actually maybe it's in the spirit of these limiting factors that actually we may well make it with geopolitics harder for the next generation of countries to do it. And, and if so, where would be the opportunities for them to actually do it? And that probably would be a bit of geopolitics stuff and so on. And, and there must be a smart game that countries can play, playing off the different players internationally and actually get there. And I, I presume some of them are, and that actually uh, I will find of, of, of real interest to see how, how they do it. You're using lots and lots of complex knowledge, lots of different sorts of information in this and putting it together to describe what's happened and to, to be able to tell the t- tell us the kind of thing we, we need to look for if we're, if, if we're expecting big things to happen in a, in a poorer country. But, but how precise can we get? You know, what kind of work can we do to, to spot uh, an emergent um, development bargain? Well, clearly, it's very hard to actually do live reporting on it. So it's again, it won't be televised at that live moment. You know, we we may notice it quite a bit later that actually something has shifted. Now, that's actually a real issue for everybody involved, because, um, you know, you at best you can say, what are the conditions that make an elite bargain for development more likely? And then, of course, I'm quite then aligned with some of the kind of institutional people and saying, well, if you actually start getting a decent rule of law, a certain sets of a bit of sensible central bank, a bit of, you know, different pieces of the of the jigsaw that need to be in place to actually be able to implement something, then, then you say, look, there's a, ch- there's a better chance you can do it. So just as I will say, if the oil prices are very high, I doubt that this is the real moment that you're going to really focus on redistribution, sorry, focus on on growth and a very different strategy to move out of oil because my God, the bonanza is happening and everybody's focused on just grabbing the little bit of the the pie. So the same in general with natural resources, they don't make it easier to actually get that shift as well. So you could have predictors that could be historical, institutional and so on. There's more chance that Singapore, uh, there was there a better, there was a better chance that Singapore could move to a development bargain than Malawi because being a port, you need to be outward looking, you need to do certain things. Being landlocked doesn't make it easier because it's not so obvious that you need to do certain things. Or similar to DRC with all its natural resources, you can predict that it would be harder. But then the other one is really the the agency. So do I know? How do I know we have one? Um, and this fair kind of can't give you a better answer than saying, you know, start looking at the actions and behaviors, you know, like a country that says, you know, a minister says, look, from now on, it will be different. You know, take a president of Malawi, from now on, will it be different? Your book is all about uh, or what you've just been saying now, especially is all about agency, how actually some of these leaders do have a choice and uh, you know, other powerful actors in the country do have a choice. And, and 
but knowing more about what the choices are, knowing what the nearby alternative pathways are that you could just about, you know, with some real effort, you could skip onto something which took you somewhere else. That's very hard to spot. Uh, and the kind of the kind of thinking that you've got in this book strikes me as something that, that could be could be used to expose some of those alternative pathways. I mean, so the way you were talking about just then is almost like you're a, an outside agency wondering what to do uh, in your relationship with the country. But even for power within the country, you know, it, it's, it's not like there's complete knowledge about what the options are. There can be, you know, there's, there's knowledge that you can carry on what you're doing. Changing direction is uh, it's a step into the unknown for almost everybody, isn't it? So knowing more about the options. No, no, I, I agree with you. And it's a really interesting point. It's actually there was a series of things you now just said. I just want to comment on it because they actually are important. So the first thing is sometimes that it looks as if everything is stuck, you know. Um, and it's one of the things that I I, I was with Mushtaq Khan, you know, the, the academic from SOA, mm -hmm. who wrote about political settlements and is considered as one of the main lights and I was with him in Bangladesh and purely coincidental and we sat on lots of panels together it was actually quite fun and look and there's a lot of what I write that people that work on political settlements actually they feel a bit like you know why didn't you recognize acknowledge us a bit more and whatever and it's fair enough you know and it's acknowledged in the book but one of the things with that kind of framework is that sometimes when you read somehow kind of call it the acolytes the other people that are right using that framework they make it sound like this is the only thing that they could have done this is the obvious outcome of where politics would settle mm -hmm. and so i remember once and i'm not going to go into detail because i would give away the name because i'm saying something negative about someone and someone something i had to read for a particular reason and the argument was made it was a serious academic piece the argument was made that the series of coups that had happened within within two years, each of them were exactly the outcome that you would have be able to think that is the only option that there was at the moment in that country. I said, no, 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 three coups in a row, you know, you could, there's lots of directions this could have gone. A lot of permutations that could have happened. They are not all, you know, this is periods of instability, whatever. So the outcome is not a settlement that needed to follow. And in fact, the direction of that country is very much determined by the last one of these schools. And I kind of, you know, I don't want to buy it, that that's the only thing, that's the obvious thing the politicians could do. So the agency matters, and I think they have it. There's another the point on Asimogli Robinson, and this is where actually some of their writers as academics, and then why nations fail, is actually, is actually slightly contradictory. When you read Asimogli Robinson, it feels deterministic. You know, you're just somehow, mm -hmm. that's where you are. It's history determines it all, and that's where you're stuck, you know. And Well, the trick is to pick something that happened in the 15th century or possibly the 17th century and say, because this, they've been on a path. Yes, and, country, I, you know, and I joke, and I joke Argent, of, Brazil has been on a different path from America ever since then. Yeah, exactly. Like so so the advice that I have to give to a government, and I, I told Jim Robinson that, and he's a good friend, and I, 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 I totally get why they did what they do, but... But somehow the advice for development that you give is to say in uh, in DRC and said, you well, I'm sorry, you know, buy yourself a better history, you know, get, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's you know, you, it, it is so it, it dependent on that, that whole thing. So, um, so, so that that's important. So I think it's other places where they write where they actually give more agency in decision making, that actually the decisions make on the economy now will shape power tomorrow, and it actually is much more endogenous. So there are decisions to be taken. As an economist, arguably, you want to have a point where you can make some decisions somewhere. And so in that sense, it's, 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 it's better. But, and then the final thing in this is that, um, 
you can appreciate that it's very hard when you sit in power. So that this is also a bit where the gambling comes back into it. You know, the future is uncertain. And I make it one of these conditions of a development bargain is a willingness to learn. So that it's not just driven by ideology, that actually you're willing to try things out, that, and that actually you have the kind of political gravitas, the political deal behind you, that actually you can try these things out. And that I find very interesting, seeing in Indonesia and so on. Of course, they made lots of errors, but they found a mechanism to correct. They found somehow in that whole system. And that's what you then kind of expect. So it is not as if the plan is laid out beautifully. Today, we're going to start doing and how we follow it. In fact, it changes. An anecdote that actually it's not in the book, but I think it's it's worth reminding. We were at some point in China, it was with, uh, with my different hat on, and we were part of the UK-China dialogue, and we had a session on development. And I made a point of actually complimenting them on the growth path they had embarked on in the 1980s. That was um, that was the, the, the best you could do for the country, which it was because it was so poverty reducing, because you decided to use, you know, absorbing the labor and the whole thing. And they insisted on correcting me afterwards and said, we never intended to reduce poverty. We intended to grow the economy. And that was important because they actually hadn't quite thought through that the mechanism by which they embarked on growth well, was actually... Did the people you were speaking to really know that or were they was that their, their, their interpretation down the line? Were, no, they, no. were the people involved in the 80s? Uh, yes, so this was the Development oh, Resource Centre. This was actually this was a closed session. This was the Development Resource Centre and people that had been involved. In fact, that centre was the ones that were studying basically at the time. They were involved at the time with the design and so on. And so they, they occasionally want to put us right because they feel the pride in it and saying, but actually, amazing honesty at that moment. Say, no, no, we actually were going to do growth. And then that turned out to be one of the outcomes. And I'm going to say it, look, like even the things we interpret afterwards as all coming together, it, it's not there. So it is that bit of the gamble, but the willingness to learn has to be there. The last bit of the book is, has got some sort of policy implications for aid allocation. And I think what you're saying is, if you can possibly spot it, the uh, the most amazing thing to do with aid would be to spot where uh, a development bargain is just emerging and to be able to really reinforce that with resources, perhaps fairly unconditional resources, uh, uh, to, to make sure that that uh, beds in, that it's not blown off course, perhaps in fact increase the rewards of having a development bargain. Sounds a great idea. Uh, but do you think it also sounds very, very hard to do? We've already said, you know, it's hard to spot when these things are even starting. In an in the aid bureaucracy, do you think that's it's possible to spot those things? Well, no. So, so I, well, look, um, and people say, oh, it's all very subjective and nothing, you know, the World Bank does allocation and one of the criteria is the CPIA, you know, the, mm, mm. Uh, it stands for again, but the indicators that some lawyers in a country will collect or whatever it is, some 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 kind of and some people in the office. Uh, you may have made yeah, some country, <laughs> yes, for when you were at the company the World Bank. So, you know, staff make it and, and um, you know, you, you make these things, you make big statements uh, on all these things. So, so, you know, there is something there and it's actually perfectly possible, I think, to you know, to to find a way of doing this and, and it and it it will be as bad as the CPIA or or as good as it is. Uh, and you can start thinking about that that carefully. So I don't think the spotting is that a big thing because our resources are typically relatively small and especially when a country is in emerging doing it, the additional resources you need to put in are usually not that dramatic. You know, you build it up, you 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 do it there. Yeah. But 
But it is something that I find really depressing. And I was told that at some point by, uh, in fact, the first time it was, I was told I was a very senior person in one of the IVs telling me how depressing he found it that uh, in the period up to 2019, three years up to 2019 or something, the most I, the largest IDA disbursements were DRC, Nigeria and Pakistan. And the ones that got far less and went to the international bonds market and basically went into debt and additional debt on commercial basis was mm-hmm. Rwanda, Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire. All three countries that actually were trying to do something in that period and doing quite well. And that's that's the thing that I say, look, you know, that silly stuff you you should be able to to start thinking about and you, you need to be willing to do it. I know it's hard in the bureaucracy. You mentioned the bureaucracy and all the rules that they have. But you could do that. You know, you 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 know that you shouldn't spend more on DRC Nigeria and Pakistan than than on some of these other places, um, proportionately even. 23 IMF programs in Pakistan, of which 22 have failed. Really? You know, surely there must be some learning. I just wonder if you ever worry that uh doing well in the last few years becomes a proxy for uh, there being a partnership or there being uh, uh, the view being taken that there's a development market bargain um, and that that become become very pro-cyclical because sometimes doing well in the last few years is really nothing to do with the elite bargain, nothing to do with what the government's doing. It's just international conditions are favourable. If you take something like Zambia, it's it's very dependent on its copper exports. The price of copper is very volatile. So when it's high, things go pretty well in, in Zambia and the donors pile in and then it, sometimes at least when the when the when the price falls in a big way the government runs out of money it can't keep its it can't keep its agreements uh, things deteriorate people are poorer and sometimes the donors walk out the donors walk out of that situation because they think that the, their partnership has been broken no, you're absolutely right and no it is a, and it is a but but you it's a really good point and and so you you kind of allude to the kind of two things you know do they do well because they really put in the effort now or do they do well because it's just the kind of what's going Favorable on conditions the yeah. super cycling commodity price and so on and of course it was a big mistake in nigeria in the africa rising kind of stuff that everybody's suddenly saying is that you know it comes back to that first thing that you really need to do and you first of all need to really understand this country well and you need to actually understand what they're doing it's not that their GDP is high, that they seem to be growing fast, but where are they spending that money? Where is it going? Where is it actually being spent on? Where is it actually, are they are they actually investing in uh, this further and, and try to do it, do this? And that again comes with deep knowledge and, and, and also a bit you're holding your cool. So holding your cool in all sides. So I'm quite happy and look, and, and I will stick my, um, I, I can get a lot of criticism for it, but I definitely, argued for example when things started to turn in ethiopia okay so go back in ethiopia after 2015-16 and started to turn it became more turkey and you know i kept on really arguing and saying look i don't think we should give up on this gamble you know this this is still this worth that this still can work you know this is a serious gamble don't start withdrawing and then you've got left right and center and the sanctions i also don't think even with the conflict there it doesn't help anyone to trying to sink the economy you know, I know enough that this conditionality doesn't work. You know, why we draw from Agoa? Why, why to take away trade preference as Europe is also threatening to do? Why do you do that? It's not going to help anyone beyond your own electorate saying, oh, we're acting something. You know, we take in the US and Congress, oh, we're acting on it. 
that stuff, no, then you hold your cool and say, look, you know, you're working with you, I stay with you. I'm cautious, maybe spent a little bit less, but I'm not going to do knee-jerk stuff. But even lower risk is is just uh, supporting people that are in peril in a country which does not have a, anything like a pro-development bargain. So, you know, helping very vulnerable people in Myanmar or Afghanistan uh, or Yemen or something, it's uh, there's a lot of evidence that that works. It doesn't cause development, but it does really help those people. You make a fair point, but you also use the word and very clearly said it. It's not really doing development. And I think I want us to make sure, I want to make sure that we, we get a little bit more honest about it that we don't spin these stories of, you know, we have no idea what to do in this country and we're just actually uh, a little bit like, you know, the only thing we should be concerned with in these places in the end is their rate of return to the direct beneficiary in the short term, okay? And a bit like, you know, you could do a give well type of approach and I have no problem with it. It's, of course, incredibly low risk, but it's also not development. You know, there is very little evidence that in the longer term, these things really unlock very much and whatever. And there is enough evidence that 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 actually, um, you know, yeah, that that, that, that actually it, it has to be happening somewhere, something at scale. And you want it to be owned by someone who has the right to ownership of that country. And of course, that's not always the people we deal with at the moment, but but there needs to be something. So so I'm perfectly happy to say we're going to just do good. But just don't sell it as if you're actually doing this word development, that, which is, of course, a, a word. It's, of it's, it's interesting that you're admitting there that you you can be pretty sure that that will work at doing good. And maybe, you know, it makes us better people if we do that, although it doesn't put that country onto a, a different course or anything. If it's really badly run, it's still going to be after you've helped the people right at the bottom. But the but the the stuff that you might do to help a country which is about to change course and become a, a you know enter the modern world become a, a country where there's huge welfare gains that's really really risky you know it's very it's really hard to pull that off it's hard to pull that off for the leadership it's it's hard for A to make any uh, any difference although it is uh, uh, once that's happening it's a really good place to put some aid in the in in the hands of the government I guess that's what you're saying. Well, that's definitely what I'm saying. Look, let's not forget these are, you know, by all meaning, somehow poor countries. You know, these are, if you look at their collective GDP, it's a fraction, a tiny fraction of what we have. And what the point I want to make is that, you know, if if as OECD countries, we want to do aid, you know, we are the biggest risk pool in the world collectively. You know, come on, if we don't take a small amount of risk for development. That actually has a potentially really high upside for all kinds of other things we do in the world, then I don't understand who would do it. You know, how is it, and the same actually applied to philanthropists, how is it these people that like to pride themselves from having taken risks and gambles and all kinds of stuff, that once it then comes to development, we have to de-risk it so much that you know the only way I'll ever give you a penny if I totally do it in the in reverse conditionality, I results-based finance or whatever. And I said, no, no, where is it actually? You know, you are the ones that pride themselves about the entrepreneurship of, of places. You know, where is your, there shows some entrepreneurship trying to do it. That's probably what I say, is that actually it is so it is so peculiar that we do not want to try to even a little bit de-risk those countries that are beginning to take off. That's why I can say, let's gamble on them. Let's do that. They're willing to take that. That's, that's the point I'm making. So it's been really enjoyable. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Stefan Durkon. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode. We'd love to hear your views on the topics we've discussed. So do get in touch with us at opml.co.uk or find us at LinkedIn at Oxford Policy Management or at OPM Global on Twitter. Thanks for listening.